0: Good morning. Um, I would normally tell you to find some chapter of Proverbs in your Bible, but we're going to be all over the place today, so just keep it handy. Try to have references on the screen, follow along. Uh, Maybe like a merry-go-round, just jump in and hang on best you can, but we'll uh, try to enjoy this study today. In the first part of Proverbs, we've we've basically looked at chapters 1 to 9, We've been looking at just the the beauty and the value, desirability of of wisdom. Um, The second part really changes tone and really shows us how this works out in our daily lives. And it follows a more varied approach. You're starting in chapter 10. It just goes from subject to subject. And so um, what we will do from here forward is try to take different subjects. We'll take some longer passages, but for the most part, taking this more or less topically. Um, but the first thing we need to see is that the, the wise person, the truly wise person, lives his or her life in light of who the Lord is, what he is like, what he delights in, what pleases him, and, and what doesn't. So that's, that's the plan uh, for today, God willing, and the next few Sundays I have with you. Uh, so that's what we'll do for today. We'll look at how Proverbs describes the Lord and what that means for how you and I should live. Uh, This is not our usual way, of course. Like I said, we normally spend time in longer passages. Today we'll be jumping around in a number of passages, but I trust by the help of of the Lord and and His Spirit, it'll be clear. So, um, let me open this. Okay. Um, So the first thing that we would see about the Lord in Proverbs is that He is our Creator. He's in fact the Creator of everything that exists. We've seen several references to the relationship between wisdom and creation i 've said it multiple times. Wisdom is woven into the fabric and structure of creation, not only its physical laws but the laws by which it operates, not just laws like the law of gravity but the law of consequences that our our actions and words also have consequences and it 's important to see that this is not an impersonal force that is wisdom points us beyond itself to God, who is wise, to the one who is the author of this wisdom and the source of this wisdom. We're not just dealing with a philosophy here or a set of rules or a set of guidelines for behavior. We're dealing with a person, ultimately. And our problem is not so much what we know or don't know. It's what we want, what we treasure, and what we value. So that's... I won't say that's the big lesson because then you'll tune me out. But uh, uh, that's, that's the idea. I know. Just defeated it all, right? So what we see, though, is that wisdom points beyond itself to our God who is good and wise, who not only created everything, but created us, created us in his image to know him. And so we see in uh, Proverbs 3 that by wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. And by understanding, he set the heavens in place. We saw this a few weeks ago. And then last week in chapter 8, we see wisdom in this passage where wisdom speaks to us. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Now this may raise for some the question of origins. Where did we come from? I mean, hasn't uh, science proven that we've evolved from lower forms of life? Well, despite the general acceptance of naturalistic evolution as, a, as an explanation for our origins, I find that deeply unsatisfactory to explain where we came from. In terms of the mechanism by which God created everything that exists, scripture tells us he spoke and things began to exist. I appreciate the words of Robert Jastrow, who was the founding director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, a planetary physicist. He says this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance, he is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. But related to creation, we find in Proverbs 20, this, that ears that hear and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. That is, he created ears, but not just ears, he created sound. That is, that's what ears are for, right? Ears would be useless if we lived in a silent world, but we do not. He created ears, he created sound, he created music, the roar of the ocean, song of a bird, the cry of a baby, the the happy kind, (laughs) and the the annoying kind too. Uh, Yeah, they're mostly annoying if they're your kids, it's okay. The sound of a loved one's voice. He, he created those things. He created eyes. And he created a visible world that's full of beauty. It's full of breathtaking beauty and grandeur. Beauty of nature, the beauty of people. And he's put some of these things just out of reach so that we can discover not just what our eyes see, but we can, and we can be fascinated not just by a starlit night, but by the, the vast expanses of space and by microscopic complexity. It it really is amazing. Years that hear and eyes that see. He's made them both. And all these are meant to point us to God, who is the good and wise creator. As C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. That's one reason we meet here today. And God's good gifts of creation, like sound and sight, are given to people regardless of whether they treasure them or abuse them. As we see in Proverbs 29, it says, The poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives sight to the eyes of both. That is, some abuse the gift of sight by using it to their advantage, to oppress people. Others uh, don't have that and see, maybe filled with jealousy or for whatever reason. But sight is a gift given to both. Much like what Jesus said, the Heavenly Father caused His rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God is our creator. Also, He knows everything. This means that nothing in creation is hidden from him. He has access to all of it at every moment. And that's not just for entertainment. Okay? It is purposeful. He's not just sur- channel surfing the, <laughs> the creation to see, well, what are they doing over in, in, uh, in Detroit today? He doesn't need to do that. He has access and his relationship to time is different. So he's not distracted. He's always, all of him is always everywhere. So in Proverbs 15, we read, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Get to that one in just a second. Or not. Death and destruction. Yeah, I thought, okay. It's there. I knew this would happen. Too many verses jumping around. So the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. But he sees more than the world our eyes see. He also sees death and destruction like the verse there. Heaven and hell, the living and the dead, the departed. All of this is open to him at every moment. And indeed, our own hearts, as it says in the the passage there. Death and destruction lie open before the Lord. How much more do human hearts? And chapter 20, it says the human spirit is the lamp of the Lord. That sheds light on one's inmost being. So the Lord sees everything. He knows us. He knows us deeply and intimately. This means that He knows our motives, perhaps even better than we do or more than we are willing to admit. Where it says in Proverbs 16 that all of a person's ways seem pure to them, but the Lord weighs the motives. He knows why we do what we do. And frankly, I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> I am a mystery to myself sometimes. Why do I do some of the things I do? Those are clear to the Lord, our motives. And Scripture tells us that the day is coming when we will in fact answer to Him for those things that we think and say and do, down to every idle word. Now, if you're like me, when you hear things like that, you're a bit unsettled. I think every word every poor choice, everything I've done, um, every time that happens, that you feel unsettled by the thought of judgment, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus for this life and the life to come. Jesus Christ died, risen, reigning, returning. He is your hope, okay? It is like the hymn that we sang, right? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Well, don't stop there, because sin should never be a glorious thought. But what happens is, when we think of our sin, it should take us to the glorious thought that by sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. So when you feel overwhelmed by your sin, your failures, your shortcomings, let that take you to the gospel, okay? You don't try to deny it, say, well, I'm not, I'm not the failure, I'm not, I'm not really a sinner, I'm not that bad, or this wasn't sin." you can own it but then you can give it to Jesus because he died and rose again to save sinners and if you're not a sinner then sorry you don't you don't qualify only sinners qualify so he knows everything he brings everything into judgment and yet for those who put their hope in him he's provided a way of freedom and forgiveness the third thing we should see in, in Proverbs about God is that he is sovereign Scripture teaches us elsewhere, God is sovereign over everything, but we see it also in Proverbs, for example, in chapter 21. It says, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Nothing. There, there may be times when it seems like uh, his plans are thwarted, but it is not true. His plans will ultimately succeed. He is sovereign. The Trinity never meets in emergency session, Okay. God is on his throne. God is not in heaven wringing his hands, saying, what will I ever do about COVID? He is God. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And that should free us not to be flippant about consequences. We're trying to be careful, provide a safe environment for worship and trying to be wise and all of that. But it also means we don't need to be paralyzed by fear. Okay. And there's a, it's a balance that's difficult to navigate sometimes, I recognize that. But there is no wisdom inside or plan that can succeed against him. He is sovereign over the exploits of the wicked and will bring them into judgment. For example, chapter 16, verse 4, he says, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked, for the day of disaster. Now, that reminds me of what God said to Moses, I'm sorry, to Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus chapter 9. He says this, excuse me, God saying, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, just before God said that to him, if you'd ask Pharaoh, how did you get to the throne? Well, you know, I inherited it by intrigue, by hereditary, whatever, by nepotism, revolution. I'll confess I don't exactly know how that change of power happened but I can promise you he was not dragged to the throne and yet God placed him there in order to show his power that his name might be proclaimed not just in Egypt but in all the earth so when we think about this the question arises in about free will don't we have free will well I will tell you that I think that term is misunderstood and it's misused. I think some people use it or understand it to mean we are morally neutral. As if, yeah, we're sinners, but sin doesn't really affect my will. I'm still free to choose. I can do whatever I want. Well, in a way, that's true. You do what you want. Again, the problem, as we see in Proverbs, is that we want the wrong things. And our will says, our will follows our mind that, thinks the wrong things, and it follows our desires that want the wrong things, and our heart that clings to the wrong things, and our affections, likewise, and our conscience that values the wrong things. And so the will says, well, all you guys line up, so I guess I'll just do this. (laughs) What happens is that we, because our will is also fallen, it follows a fallen mind, and a fallen heart, and affections, and a fallen conscience, we freely and willingly choose to delight in our own wisdom rather than God's. We want and choose the wrong things. But thankfully, that is not the whole story because the Holy Spirit by the gospel adds a a plot line to our story of transforming grace. So that changes everything. Not perfect, but we are made new, beginning a process of transformation that is ongoing. But we need to understand in all of this as we think about for example, about Pharaoh, every person's willing choices, we still make willing choices. We just, they're not neutral. So all of our willing choices, regardless of their intent, advance the purpose of God in some way. There are people who will make choices in life and work and daily activities because they love the Lord, want to please Him. And there are people who will make daily choices in life and work and relationships and other areas because they hate God. Both of those decisions will, in one way or another, advance the purpose of God. And so Pharaoh is not dragged to the throne. He willingly rises to the throne of Egypt. And in doing so, he willingly and freely enslaves a people, God's people, well that served to advance god's purpose as god not only liberated those people but utterly shamed and embarrassed egypt's gods in the process so to bring this to today if you are living in rebellion against god you need to know you are fighting a pointless battle you're fighting against someone that you actually do not want as an enemy and whom you cannot conquer. You will, every person under the sound of my voice, whether you're in the room or online, whoever, every person who has ever lived and ever will live, will bow the knee to Jesus and will acknowledge he is Lord. Every one of us, every one of you. You will, if you have not already. And we pray, we pray it is in this life. We pray it is now from a place of joy and gratitude and forgiveness and salvation and not from a place of, of defeat and, and judgment. So we, we pray and plead with you to give your heart to Christ. <clears throat> we also see a sovereignty in the way he helps us in times of conflict. We're, we're told in, uh, again in chapter 16 um, it says when the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way he causes their enemy to be at peace with them. So the Lord has a way of working, even in times when, when we are opposed, when we're in conflict, He works in that, sometimes bringing some level of reconciliation and, and harmony and agreement in that. I've seen that happen. And perhaps you can look back on your life and see how the Lord has done that, even if it wasn't totally, even if it wasn't like they came to Christ, but, but God was at work in that situation and and sustained you, gave you victory in that. Sometimes he does allow conflict to continue. The longer I live, the more, it just seems the messier situations seem to be. Sometimes those things continue, but we can trust him in those processes that the Lord is at work. He has a larger good purpose in all of this, and his purpose will prevail. He's sovereign over those in power. For example, in chapter 21, it says, In the Lord's hand... The king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him, or as in some translations you may be using, that he turns it wherever he wishes. That is, we can trust God's purposes are somehow being carried out even by decisions that we may not agree with by those in power. I usually think of this verse if, I'm, if I need something from a bureaucrat at any level. If I need a visa, if, I need, if, I, if there is somebody in power... This is where I'm going. Lord, their heart is in your hand. Guide their decision and and help me, you know, be grateful for the outcome knowing that you 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 are at work, your purposes will prevail. And I really hope that I get what I want. And I think the Lord chuckles behind a cloud and says, "We'll we will see." So, I'll get what I want, you may not get what you want. Um, We can trust God's purposes are being carried out by people in power, even though they may not be consciously, willingly serving the Lord. We understand God is at work. He is sovereign over all of these things. Now, this doesn't mean we should take a passive approach to life, shouldn't exert influence where we have opportunity, a vote or a legal option or a voice in in some decision, or that we shouldn't, doesn't mean we shouldn't try to elect officials who who will enact good laws or try to seek to change policies at some level but we can trust that the Lord is at work, working out his good purposes in whatever happens in these settings. We also see that he's sovereign over what are seemingly chance circumstances. For example, in, again, in chapter 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, this is not a, a command for us to go home and start making decisions by rolling dice, okay? Uh, you know, I could say, Roll the dice, comes up seven, time to do a new budget. You know, that's pretty much how I, actually, that's pretty much how I do the church budget. I just, uh, (laughs) purely blindfold on a dart throw. Uh, Especially those of you who remember the first one, Drew and I did, it was pretty bad. Well, I'll I'll admit, I I don't think that's uh, the best way to make decisions. Uh, But it is an affirmation that God is sovereign, even over small things. And it, what it should do is free us in small things. And I, that's, uh, small areas is where I really struggle. Uh, Karen and I had driven somewhere last night coming home. <laughs> I see a parking space in front of our, our apartment. I think, yes, that is mine. And before I could position, of course, somebody got it. And I was so mad. I was mad. Thankfully, Karen was wise enough to say, just remember God is sovereign, you know. She knows that probably wouldn't have helped my frame of mind. Might have, but I think after 30 plus years, she knows. But it is meant to free us to trust him, even with small things. And you may be like me and struggle more with small things than, than major things, but um, just know you can trust him. He is, he is sovereign. We also need to understand that God's sovereignty in our lives means he may take our lives in directions that we don't understand. For example, in chapter 20 it says a person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? Many times life just takes unexpected turns and we don't understand what is going on. God is in control though. You think of Job. Job, you know, Job the in, in the biblical story in the story, he is never told why the things that happened to him happened. He is, he is a player, <laughs> but it's not explained to him. And life is like that a lot, that God is doing things, and sometimes he tells us a bit. and We can trust him. He is sovereign. He is directing our steps but it's going to be in ways that we often do not understand. So if you find yourself confused by the unexpected turns of life, um, just know you're in good company. That describes, I think, pretty much all of us. I think it describes everyone who's written a psalm, <laughs> all 150, some unexpected turn in life. Um, just know God is in control. We, we tend to think if I do the right things, God will do this. And often works that way, but it doesn't always. And that doesn't mean God's broken a promise. It just means he's in control and is guiding your life in a certain way. He has his reasons. And sometimes he tells us we have to trust him. We just have to trust him. Now, another thing we learn about God, more about his character, is that he loves what is good and he hates what is wicked. And this really captures a large number of proverbs. Now, if you have taking my proverbs challenge and you're reading a chapter every day for the day you're going to find that that there are a lot of verses that i'm not going to mention today because there are a lot that are virtual duplicates and are redundant that's not a bad thing it's good repetition is the mother of learning and they're sprinkled throughout the proverbs so that's a good and healthy thing all right but i'm not going to quote or read all of them to you because that would that could be monotonous even for this so don't want to do that to you but just We're trying to capture the ones that express the core of this. So what we see is that a large number of proverbs describe God's character in terms of what he loves and what he hates. It uses a contrast. He hates something. He loves something. He opposes something. He blesses something. He's pleased by something. He's offended by something. All of these in one way or another point us to his goodness. That is, he loves what he loves... Because he is good. And he hates what he hates because he is good. Even though it's maybe unsettling to think about God is hating. He, he hates what he hates. And this will make sense in a minute. But it is because he's good. He's not capricious or moody. He's, he's good. So let's look at a few. In chapter 6, we read about some things the Lord hates. So as we read, notice the references to anatomy here. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So we see then first that he hates pride, which also means he loves humility. So we read in in chapter 3, he mocks proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. In chapter 16, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. He loves and he blesses the humility, the seen in a tender heart. In chapter 28, blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. Now, humility is often confused with self-deprecation and finding fault with yourself. That is actually a form of, of self-centered pride. I took a, actually took a class in seminary on, on uh, self-deprecation, and I made a good grade, but I really wasn't happy. Thank you. Whew. Scared me for a minute. I didn't really take a class. I just thought that would be funny. So, he wants us to be self-forgetful, not self-deprecating. Now, self-deprecation can be funny, but it also can be unhealthy. So, just say that to excuse most of my comments and jokes that are self-deprecating. But it can be a form of pride, of, of false humility. When you're constantly finding fault with yourself, woe is me, I'm terrible, I did this, it was awful. You need to stop beating yourself up and again, put your hope in Christ for whatever that issue is. So a proper appraisal of self, but a focus really on Christ rather than on ourselves. He wants us to be humble when we face opposition. For example, in chapter 20, do not say I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, he'll avenge you. And when those who oppose us inevitably fall, we also need to be humbled. He says in chapter 24, don't, Do not gloat when your enemy falls, when they stumble. Don't let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. You think, well, where? Doesn't say. Just don't do that. <laughs> okay. He hates lying and deceit, which means he loves honesty and integrity. So in chapter 11, the Lord detests Dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. He hates violence and injustice, which means he loves justice. So in chapter 17, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both of those injustice. We see this his love for justice and hatred of injustice, especially regarding the vulnerable. For example, chapter 14, "'Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their Maker, "'but whoever is kind to the needy honors God.'" Chapter 22, "'Do not exploit the poor because they're poor. "'Don't crush the needy in court, "'for the Lord will take up their case "'and will exact life for life.'" So if you have power over others, be careful how you use that. The Lord especially loves those who are vulnerable widows fatherless and others that are mentioned in other proverbs he hates wickedness and evil and he loves righteousness Now, this is not the the righteousness that we receive by faith in christ this is righteous character that does the right things that please the lord so we see in chapter 15 the lord detests the way of the wicked but he loves those who pursue righteousness he loves those who want to do the right thing seek to do the right thing and make good choices he loves to see that. Okay, Be encouraged. If that is you this morning, be encouraged. You're sitting here saying, I desire to do the right thing. I struggle. But the desire is there. Be encouraged. The Lord loves to see that desire and he will work to kindle and stir that up. Uh, In chapter 21, to do what is right and just is more accessible to the Lord than sacrifice. Chapter 10, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Now, Righteous people do go hungry sometimes. The Lord let Israel hunger in the wilderness in order to test them to know what was in their hearts. But he will never abandon us, even in times of hunger, even when food lacks. Know that this is not an ultimate thing. There may be those seasons, but he will keep his promise and he will satisfy the, the cravings and desires of your heart. At least the good ones, right? And it does seem that the cravings and desires of the wicked are satisfied. That they seem to have everything they need without any trouble. Well, you need to know... If that is true, it is true just for the moment, and the wicked will never be satisfied ever, no matter how much they have. We see his love for the righteous also in his delight in our prayers. Chapter 15, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. He's pleased when we pray. Verse 29, same chapter, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. He is delighted when we pray. He doesn't roll his eyes and say, oh, it's, <laughs> it's him again. Uh, I mean, there's times when I will end my sort of morning prayer routine and say, you know, I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. You know, we, we both know it. And sometimes what I say, especially in the, the morning routine, is... You know, very similar. I'm praying for family and things that are, that are weighing on my heart. But I, I think he hears and he answers and he, he just likes it when we pray. So if you're discouraged in prayer and struggling, I struggle to persist in prayer. I think I share with this, uh, shared this with you a few weeks ago. A friend's uh, mother came to Christ. He had prayed for her for over 40 years. I think, you know, I've got loved ones who are not yet... Come to Christ. And, uh, that encouraged me to, to pick that up again. So just know the Lord likes it when we pray. He hates a false witness who pours out lies. He loves a faithful witness. Now this, this hate seems to have a public focus. That is, the thing he hates here is not so much interpersonal falsehood as it is public false witness. So it says, uh, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. And also in chapter 12, a truthful witness saves lives, but a false witness is deceitful. Chapter 19, a false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will not go free. We see that he hates the person who stirs up conflict among his people, and he loves those who promote peace. So again, in chapter 15, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but one who is patient calms a quarrel. Chapter 16, a perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip Separates close friends, Chapter twelve: Deceit is in the heart of those who plot evil, but those who promote peace have joy. and I love this from chapter twenty six about conflict. Without wood, a fire goes out. You know you get into these situations, you think you feel conflict building, I, and I love the word picture. Just take a log off the fire, turn down the heat. <laughs> everybody take a deep breath let 's listen, try to understand what 's going on. So just as taking wood off the fire. Reduces the flame. Stop the gossip. Do more listening than talking. As charcoal to embers, as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. So as we, as we wrap this up, our consideration of how God, our, our good and wise God, is presented to us in Proverbs, we need to know that in God's goodness and his wisdom and his sovereignty, the people who love what he hates and hate what he loves will face the consequences of that choice. And again, as As we read, again, notice the references to anatomy. Again in chapter 6, a troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, motions with his fingers, plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So yes, there will be consequences to the actions and choices that we that we make. At the same time, Proverbs twenty-eight tells us that God offers mercy to those who who turn to Him. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So, if you are here today feeling overwhelmed and weighed down by sin, confess your sins to the Lord. From a New Testament perspective, we understand He offers forgiveness and freedom and life because Jesus Christ has died. And risen. He is alive today. He offers that to you if you will put your hope in him. And when you go to him, what you will find is in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10: The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Father, thank you for for your goodness, your wisdom, your sovereignty, for the things you love and hate. We ask. To bring us to that place that we can rest in your sovereignty and trust your wisdom. That we can delight in you. Learn to love what you love and hate what you hate. That we might follow you faithfully. We pray for anyone here today who's still struggling trying to understand where they are with you. you pray. We pray that will become clear to them. You Give them grace to respond to you. Help us all to follow you and trust you. Trust you when life takes unexpected turns. To trust your goodness. In all of these situations, we do love you. We thank you. Thank you for hearing our prayer, for answering us, for delighting in our prayers. They're—they're—I'll um, speak for myself. They're pathetic and shallow, so often, self-centered, so, and yet somehow you—you you delight in us praying. And we want to learn how to pray in such a way that you hear us—that is true fellowship. So we pray you teach us. Help us follow faithfully, please. In Jesus' name, amen.